Did you know that the Messiah's second coming is tied to the repentance of Israel? To enter the New Jerusalem, you must enter one of 12 gates that are named for the 12 tribes of Israel. The very one we exalt is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Bottom line, to minimize Israel is to disregard God's prophetic plan. Well, we'll discuss Messiah in the end times just ahead. Welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert and author. And I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, it's that time of year again, the biblical fall feasts, the holy days are upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people, how they play a role in God's plans for the future, and why they matter for us as believers. That's right, John. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feast. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. Now to sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and then sign up. Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. Well, next weekend is Rosh Hashanah and the start of Israel's High Holy Days, which run into October and include Yom Kippur and Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. How does Israel as a country go about preparing for all these fall festivals? Well, I need to answer three ways, logistically, security-wise, and socially. Logistically, the country prepares in a way that's roughly parallel to what we do here in the States to prepare for things like Thanksgiving or Christmas. And what I mean by that is, just like we see decorations going up in towns and stores and homes to get ready for the holidays, well, something similar takes place in Israel. Engineers inspect the Western Wall to make sure all the stones are structurally sound. They remove loose stones and plants that have grown in the cracks, and they clean the wall itself and remove all the notes that were written and stuffed between the stones. They also spruce up the plaza and get it ready for the thousands of visitors expected to come. People purchase plants and other materials needed to build the booth so they can celebrate the Feast of Shavuot. Now, security-wise, Israel also knows this is a time when terrorists and terror organizations try to launch attacks. Israel's National Security Council issued travel update warnings to Israel. It said Iran and Hamas were seeking to kidnap Israelis both at home and abroad. Several plots have already been uncovered. And finally, socially, the country divides in two during this time of year. Many religious Jews travel to Israel to participate in the High Holy Days. Jerusalem becomes crowded with Sukkot or booths springing up on almost every balcony and porch. At the same time, since the country virtually closes down, many secular Jews leave Israel for a final vacation. One popular spot is the Sinai Peninsula. The government's warning those traveling there this year to stay at sites protected by security forces and not to travel into the interior of the peninsula. They've also highlighted an elevated threat in Sweden and Denmark in the wake of recent Quran burnings in those countries, as well as potential attacks from anti-Semitic far-right groups in both the U.S. and Europe. Now, as the government gets all the preparations in order, their message to the people can be boiled down to one we can understand. Enjoy the season, but remain cautious and be aware of your surroundings. 
Well, even though the Knesset, Israel's parliament, is out of session until after the High Holy Days, rumors and charges still swirl around Prime Minister Netanyahu, the current coalition, and their plans for reform. What are some of the latest rumors, and how seriously should we take them? Well, the most outrageous rumor is that Prime Minister Netanyahu is preparing to step down in return for an Israeli-Saudi peace deal. According to this rumor, published in an ultra-Orthodox newspaper, Netanyahu would resign, causing the current coalition to collapse. In return, he would be given a plea bargain deal to eliminate all criminal charges against him, and a unity government would be formed to implement the Saudi deal, pushing the far-right parties out of the coalition. Now, that story has just enough detail to make it sound plausible, but the prime minister's own Likud faction hit back, saying the report's nothing but a, quote, far-fetched fabrication. It's hard to imagine how such a plan, which would require negotiations with the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Israel's opposition party leaders, and the Israeli courts, to take place in secret until a relatively minor newspaper was able to uncover it. Now, this might come under the category of fake news, or at least news based on speculation. The U.S. is pushing talks between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but the key feature is a defense pact between the nations, not an agreement that requires Netanyahu to resign. Some of the other rumors swirling around also sound more like conspiracy theories. One focused on an alleged plan to force a dictatorship into schools. It involved an effort by the education minister to fire the head of Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, for unspecified irregularities. Uh, the rumor circulated that it was really because Yad Vashem had hosted a singer on Holocaust Remembrance Day who's a critic of the government. Well, the government denied the charge, and later information came out that said, in fact, that charge was rather spurious. But another rumor centered on a government plan to replace the body that currently licenses broadcast news. The new plan is designed to increase competition, but according to the rumor circulating, it's really designed to promote pro-government broadcasters. Hmm. And a call by Netanyahu to hold face-to-face -face talks on a judicial overhaul compromise was dismissed by the opposition as nothing more than spin, even before listening to any of the details. John, with all those rumors, the problem in Israel is like it is here in the U.S. The sides are so polarized that each distrusts the other and assumes there must be a secret conspiracy and plot behind every proposal. <laughs> Now, the bottom line, don't take too seriously anything either side is saying in Israel until you carefully read all the details and then read the response from the other side. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. In this first of four segments, we take a look at current events unfolding in the Middle East. Story number three, Egypt's National Election Authority has been meeting to finalize the logistics for their next presidential election. What do we know right now about the election process and possible candidates? Well, the election timeline is still being finalized, but there are some constitutional mandates that set clear guidelines. Uh, for example, the Constitution says the process to select a new president must begin at least 120 days before the conclusion of the current president's term. That's why they know the election process must begin no later than December 1, because El Sisi's term in office expires on April 2. The Constitution also says the results of the election must be made known a minimum of 30 days before the conclusion of the current president's term. So the entire election process, including any potential runoff, must take place between December 1 and March 2. Thus far, five people have announced plans to compete in the upcoming election. The one person who has not yet announced whether he'll run is President el-Sisi. An alliance of 40 political parties have already endorsed him for a new term should he decide to run. 
Right now, it seems likely that he will announce another run for office, and if he does, he will likely get reelected. However, there are concerns that the government will stifle political opposition to help guarantee a win, and the arrest of a publisher and democracy advocate two weeks ago hasn't helped in that regard. Hmm. He was detained after refusing to post bail following his arrest in a defamation case brought by a former minister. Now, is this a government crackdown on dissent or a bit of grandstanding by this individual to garner international attention and put pressure on El Sisi? We'll likely never know, but watch for an announcement on El Sisi's intentions in the not-too-distant future as the election season in Egypt heats up. Christians under attack in Israel. That and similar headlines have appeared in the media over the past few weeks. What exactly has been happening and how serious is the problem Christians are facing in Israel? Well, Christians have faced harassment in Israel, and much of it has come from far-right Jewish groups, especially youth. Thirty graves in the Protestant cemetery on Mount Zion were vandalized in January. Two Jewish men attacked a bishop and some priests during Mass at the Church of Gethsemane in March. In May, Jewish activists tried to disrupt a Christian conference in the Old City, and the Interior Ministry has started denying work and clergy visas for the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem, which is an evangelical Christian ministry that supports Israel. Now, these and other incidents are disturbing, and while they're being caused by a relatively small number of right-wing Jewish activists, those individuals do seem to be emboldened by some in the government who apparently approve of their actions. It's serious enough that Israel's tourism ministry convened a forum to draw attention to the harassment and attacks. And Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke in a video conference just about a week ago, assuring evangelical Christians of Israel's friendship. But I need to put this in a little more perspective. In a survey last year, 84% of Christians in Israel reported being satisfied with their lives. And the Christian population there grew by 1.5% last year. In contrast, the Christian communities living under the Palestinian Authority are dwindling. The number of Christians in Bethlehem has shrunk from 80% of the population to 12% in the quarter century since the Palestinian Authority took control. But that doesn't negate the fact that some of those on the far right in Israel have persecuted followers of Jesus, and that persecution has been increasing. Now, I've never had a problem, nor have any of my groups had a problem in Israel. But I think our, all of our listeners, we need to be praying for both the Jewish and Arab followers of Jesus in the Holy Land because they are experiencing persecution from both sides. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate your balanced perspective as always. A full program today with questions and answers coming up, Charlie's devotional. But first, Messiah in the end times. Did you know that Messiah's second coming is tied to the repentance of Israel? To enter the New Jerusalem, we enter one of 12 gates that are named for the tribes of Israel. So a lot to talk about with regard to Messiah in the end times. And that's our focus as the program continues next here on The Land and the Book. Have you picked up on the growing interest there seems to be in end times events? What's behind that? And what's the role of Messiah in the end times? And while we're asking questions, why do so many of us struggle grasping that the work of Christ really and truly is done? Boy, these are huge issues, and I'm looking forward to tackling them with a great friend of the land and the book, 
Sam Nadler. And before we say hi, let's give this a thought real briefly. So there you are talking with your Jewish friend and and there's some headway in the discussion and, and some interest in what you're sharing about Christ. But then they say, I will lose my community if I believe in Jesus. Is that really true? Levi Hazen is with Life in Messiah. Is that really true? Well, John, this is a sad reality. A lot of Jewish people, even some of our secular Jewish friends, are under pressure to not believe in Jesus. I've known Jewish people who were abandoned by their families for their beliefs in Jesus. One man's family even had a literal funeral for him, viewing him as good as dead. Hmm. So there are a couple things I would ensure my Jewish friend is aware of. First, Jesus asked the perfect question, recorded in Mark 8, 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If the gospel is true, then what we do with it determines where we spend eternity. Do we really want to spend eternity separated from God so that we can have the approval of our community for a short time? The other thing I'd want them to know about is that there are thousands upon thousands of Jewish people who have already taken that step of faith and who do believe in Jesus. That's encouraging. Levi Hazen is with Life in Messiah with insights here on The Land and the Book. Sam Nadler is the president and founder of Word of Messiah Ministries. Sam is a Jewish believer in Jesus, and over his 40 years in Messianic ministry, he has focused on raising leaders who plant congregations and make disciples of Yeshua, Jesus. He also speaks in churches worldwide to encourage Gentile believers and to bring the message of the burden of God's heart for the Jewish people, to see them come to know Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. It has been entirely too long since we had you on the program, Sam, so welcome back to The Land and the Book. Shalom, John, and shalom to all who are listening. Hey, is it just me, or does there seem to be a greatly renewed sense of interest in the end times in the last just five years or so? What's your assessment? John, even though Yeshua, Jesus, uh, for our listeners, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, of course, but though uh, Jesus had said that during this age there would be wars and rumors of wars, and yet society seems much less stable lately uh, with gay marriages and its agenda, gender confusion, school shootings, terrorism, and now AI. And all of this leads people to seek answers and comfort from God. And so there's a renewed teaching uh, that these are all signs of the time that God's in control and some way to comfort people, I believe. Hmm. Well, your book is titled Messiah in the End Times. And I have to ask, how is this book different than others that look at the future? And there are many. Well, everyone who rightly divides the Word of God is going to come up with very similar conclusions. And so, uh, like all, all of my books, uh, written to teach the Bible in a messianic frame of reference. And by that, I mean the centrality of Messiah's finished work and the centrality of Israel in the plan of God. And so that may be some differences of sorts uh, than many other books. You've said there are certain matters essential to our understanding of God's prophetic timeline that other books may recognize, but they don't prioritize. How would you reprioritize our understanding of events that maybe we've got out of whack or just plain wrong? Yeah, well, I, I think, John, you hit it when you first opened the program. Uh, the finished work of Messiah is our everything. 
Uh, everything that God had planned, if you read Ephesians chapter 1, everything that God had planned uh, from beginning to end into eternity, of course, is all done in Messiah. His finished work is our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. All that is past, present, and future is fulfilled in the plan of God through Messiah's death. And that's biblically expressed uh, as to the Jew first. Uh, For God is presently faithful to Israel, that is the Jewish people, and the remnant of Israel testifies to that fact. Well, as plain as it seems at a surface level that Messiah's work is finished, I mean, he himself declared it from the cross, it is finished. Why do so many get this wrong? Well, there's a growing number of people getting it right, and I want to praise God for that. Mm. But there's a lack of proper discipleship in most churches. Most churches depend—I'm going to be using certain words, I'm happy to explain further, but most churches depend on acculturation, not discipleship. They want people to fit into what's going on not necessarily getting them grounded and rooted in the Word. Uh, Secondly, there's a lack of exegetical study and expository preaching, I suppose, for many preachers. And then thirdly, there's a general lack of understanding to what the finished work of Messiah pertains to. That is, all of God's work for justification, sanctification, glorification is fulfilled in the cross of Messiah. And his cross also includes all that God will be doing in the future. And so I think there needs to be a greater understanding of what the death of the Messiah actually accomplished. Uh, Many times, as you're familiar with this, most Christians are thankful that he died for my sins, and now I have my ticket punched for heaven. (laughs) But what they don't fully understand is that, in fact, his death, it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says the cross of Messiah, the cross is, to those being saved, is the power of God. In his cross is our power for victorious living. We live out his victory. Sam Nadler is the president and founder of Word of Messiah Ministries. He's written Messiah in the End Times. What do many of us miss about the centrality of Israel in God's prophetic plan? You know, sadly, I see in America, in evangelical churches, a gentle but steady moving away from Israel as central to anything, as if somehow the church has replaced Israel. Your thoughts? What you're talking about is, uh, let me just expand on what you just alluded to there. Uh, Historically, we're coming out of replacement theology, uh, and there are many residual effects of that false teaching. Uh, Replacement theology has to do Uh, with the church as a replacement of Israel. And so with the rise, it goes back quite a ways, uh, with the rise of allegorical interpretation in the third century, developed by Origen way back in the day, uh, was the teaching that the Bible is just a mystery. It's a big allegory. Well, with this false interpretation came misinterpretation of the Bible, and Israel's place in the plan of God. And also uh, the Jewish people, because of this teaching, uh, became considered the has-beens of biblical history. 
uh, and the church was then declared to be the new Israel. Well, Mm -hmm. with the Reformation, if you remember with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the boys, with that came a rediscovery of literal and natural interpretation, which we mean just accepting the Scripture for what it says. If it's a verb, we translate and understand it as a verb. If it's a noun, it's a noun, that kind of thing. And so, as simple as that may seem, that was a, that was rediscovered, so to speak, by mm-hmm. the Reformers. And with each succeeding generation, the application of literal and natural interpretation became more thoroughly applied. And I started out, of course, salvation by faith in the Messiah. And then immersion became a discussion point. Uh, who should be baptized? We decided, uh, many decided certainly, that it should be those who profess faith. Uh, And then following that, the great missionary movement of the 1700s began with Carrie in India. And then in the 19th century, because of just taking the Bible, what it says, they discovered that God doesn't hate the Jews. Mm -hmm. It had been taught that God was through with Israel, uh, that the Jew could not be saved as a Jew. He had to give up being a Jew in order to be saved. But in any case, this rediscovery that God does not hate the Jewish people actually began uh, what is considered the modern missionary movement to Jewish people. And with that matter, with that slow beginning as such, the anti-Jewish point of view was slowly removed, and there was a growing recognition of the centrality of Israel in the plan of God. Let me ask about the role of Israel during the millennial reign. What can we expect there, Sam? Well, let's back up just a bit, if we may. We have to remember that at this point in time, there is a remnant of Israel that testifies of God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. But Israel as a nation is still in unbelief for the most part. Jewish people in general generally do not believe. Well, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Israel will then come to trust in Messiah's death, for they will look unto him whom they have pierced, Zechariah 12.10. And so when it prophesies they will look unto him whom they have pierced, this idea of pierced has to do with looking to his death Uh, not only for forgiving and cleansing of sin, but the restoration of national Israel as God's servant nation. And when they believe on Jesus, on Yeshua, on the Messiah and his death, this triggers the second coming of Messiah to planet Earth. Then in the millennial kingdom, a regenerate Israel will be the head of the regenerate nations for Messiah who rule from Jerusalem. Remember, the only people that enter into the kingdom will be those who are regenerate, born again. All the rest will face the judgments that will come about prior to the millennial kingdom. You say that the second coming of Israel is tied to the repentance of Israel. And though we see pockets of salvation there, it doesn't feel like a national turning to Messiah right now. And some would say, well, that just means the second coming is still a long way off. How do you respond? Well, I do think his second coming of Messiah uh, to planet Earth is at least seven years away. But understand the second coming is a twofold event. And so the resurrection 
and the translation of the body Messiah uh, when he comes for uh, the body. Uh, that can happen at any time in the twinkling of an eye. So we need to understand uh, that that event, the rapture, the resurrection and translation of the body, that can happen any time. And then following that, at some point following that, will be uh, Israel signing that seven-year agreement uh, with the one who will be the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist as such, and that will trigger the seven years of tribulation. And then following that, the second coming at the end of the tribulation. We're talking with Sam Nadler. And Sam, it's not enough to be merely curious about the future. How should we respond to what you're sharing with us? How can we live effective lives in the light of Messiah's certain return? God has given us prophetic scripture to assure us that he has the future under his control so that we will live confidently for him now, that we would not be distracted by worry, anxiety, or fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but the power of love and a sound mind. And therefore, that will be seen. Our confidence in him is going to be seen in sharing the good news with those around us and around the world. This is the calling the body Messiah has. Whatever country you're in, you're called to bring the good news to those around you and support his worldwide work of missions to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Fascinating conversation. Sam, thank you so much for your insights. More in his book, Messiah in the End Times, a link to the book and to his ministry at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Look forward to having you back on the program, Sam. Shalom, everyone. Shalom, John. And Charlie's back with Bible Questions next, here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. If we've never met before, I'm John Geiger. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, a lifelong student of the Middle East, has traveled there more than 100 times. He has been a pastor and a guy who loves the Word, and so he loves this next segment. We're looking forward to digging into today's big pile, but not before we observe the fact that it's that time of year again, the biblical fall feasts. The holy days are upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people, how they play a role in God's plan for the future, and why they matter for us as believers. And our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feast. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. Now to sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. All right, Charlie, your Bible's open. We'll get right to our first question from Linny. Are we allowed to address Satan or his demons in the name of the Lord Jesus and say, the Lord rebuke you? I've heard people argue on both sides, so help me untangle this. Well, I see three passages that, that at least might help us in some way. Uh, the first is Jude 9. And that's where Michael the archangel called on the Lord to rebuke Satan. 
However, it wasn't that Satan was attacking Michael. Rather, they were disputing over the body of Moses. Rather than opposing and seeking to judge Satan in his own power, Michael called on the Lord to bring about that rebuke. But the larger point in Jude seems to be that we're not to cavalierly slander celestial beings like angels or demons, especially when we're doing so against beings we don't even fully understand. Now, the second passage that comes to mind is James 4, verse 7. Uh, There we're told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. In the context, James is speaking against doing things, uh, including prayer, with wrong motives and being governed by prideful, sinful, worldly motives. Uh, uh, He says that in verses 4 to 6. So it seems that James is saying Satan will use those kind of wrong motives to entice us to disobey God. The solution is to resist the devil's temptations and instead to submit to God and draw near to him. So in this case, it's not that we do a public verbal rebuke of Satan, but rather we have a deliberate decision to submit to God rather than succumb to Satan's temptations. And the third passage, well, it happens to be Satan's temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And I'll use the Matthew 4 passage. In all three temptations, Jesus responded by quoting scripture. In fact, from the book of Deuteronomy, no less. In the final temptation, Jesus did say, away from me, Satan. But he said it based on God's word. He says, away from me, for it is written. And the word for there as an explanatory conjunction, that is, Satan's to leave because God alone is to be worshiped, the Bible says. Uh, Now, I put all those together this way. I'm personally hesitant to say, I rebuke you, Satan, since that involves me doing something in a realm beyond my ability to fully understand. But I can actively resist Satan by consciously submitting to the Lord. And I can work to thwart him by knowing and submitting to God's word. If I submit to God, resist the devil, and do so by using God's word, then I believe James is saying Satan will flee from us. But I I really don't see any command that gives me the freedom to bind Satan or somehow exercise my authority over him. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says someday we'll be given authority to judge angels. But that verse also says that's future. Uh, It's not something that's happening today. Nancy points out that in Matthew 26, verses 21 and 22, Jesus told the disciples, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord. And then in Luke 22, it says they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. My question, why did every disciple think he was capable of betraying the Messiah? Why did they have such self-doubt in themselves that they actually thought any of them could do such a deed? Well, I think the answer is that the disciples, probably with the exception of Judas, didn't see themselves as being capable of denying Jesus. Uh, In Matthew 26, when he tells them, literally, one from among you will betray me, in response, they ask Jesus directly, surely not I, Lord? And in Greek, it's framed in a way that they expected a negative answer. Even, even as they asked, they were expecting him to know that they weren't the traitor. You're not referring to me, right? Uh, and then that Luke 22 passage where it says they began to discuss among themselves. Well, the Greek word there has the idea of discuss or dispute or question. Uh, they were talking among themselves now and they were asking each other in effect, who do you think it is? Could it be? And they put in somebody else's name. Each was debating which of the other disciples it might be, knowing that it couldn't be them. This is The Land in the Book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer is answering your questions, and they come to us via email. You got one you want to send to us? Here's where to park it, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. In Revelation 14, there are two beings in heaven who have sickles in their hands. Both swing their sickles over the earth to gather a harvest. A listener wants to know who is doing the harvesting. Are both harvests targeting the same produce or different? 
Why are the harvests back-to-back? What exactly is being harvested? Yeah, and this points out uh, where our limitations are in the book of Revelation. You know, there are multiple individuals mentioned in that chapter. So if I go through them briefly, the, the first is said to have a sickle in verse 14. He's described as one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. I take that one to be Jesus because of the use of son of man and the description of that crown of gold that he's wearing. Then in verse 17, we're introduced to another angel with a sickle, and that phrase, another angel, is used in this chapter in verses 6, 8, 9, 15, 18. So I think it can be confusing sometimes to keep them separate, but I take the second person there to be an unidentified angelic being. We're just not told who he is. Now, before this becomes too confusing, here's the main point, and this is what I think we need to focus on in that chapter. The chapter is reiterating the overall judgment pictured in the rest of the book. Jesus is about to judge the world for its sin and the rejection of God that they've done to follow Satan. And he has angelic beings who are assisting in that judgment. Now, many of the details just aren't yet clear, at least from my perspective right now, but they will become clear when that time arrives. Russell says, I've got a question about Ezekiel 33, verses 30 through 33. Does the rest of the Bible indicate that this is how it will be for some people after the rapture, people who were in the church? I think it's possible, but would appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, and I need to make a distinction between interpretation and application. Now, by way of interpretation, Ezekiel 33 introduces the second half of the book, and God calls Ezekiel a second time to deliver a message now of restoration and blessing for Israel. But as in his original call, God makes it clear to Ezekiel that his responsibility is to faithfully share the message, whether or not the people choose to respond. If they fail to respond, they'll still be forced in the end to acknowledge the message they had earlier refused, and they'll be forced to say it was true. Now, by way of application, I do think there'll come a time when those who've rejected the message of the gospel in this age will be forced to acknowledge that fact. I'm not sure if it'll happen right at the time of the rapture, since 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 11 says Satan's going to pull out all the stops to deceive those remaining, and God's going to send a delusion on them to allow them to believe the lie. But ultimately, at the great white throne judgment, I think everyone's going to be forced to bow the knee and acknowledge the truth that they had earlier rejected was indeed true. Here's a listener who wants to know how the book of life in Revelation 13, verse 8, is reconciled with Psalm 69, verse 28. Yeah, I need to start with the Psalm 69 passage. That's a Psalm of David. He's asking God to judge his enemies. Now, the Psalm has a messianic focus in the sense that what David describes of his own life parallels events in the life of Jesus. For example, he says, the zeal of your house has consumed me. And that's John chapter two quotes that. And he says, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And of course, in Luke 23, we see that happening to Jesus on the cross. But having done that, David then asked God to blot the names of his enemies out of the book of life. Uh, and he says that in the first part of verse 29. Uh, it's parallel, though, in that passage. It says, and, and may they not be regarded with the righteous in the second half of that verse. In other words, David's asking God to make sure his enemies are recognized by God as being wicked and then judged accordingly. Now, some see the book of life in Psalm 69 being a reference to God's record of the living. And if that's the case, then being blotted out of the book of life would be the equivalent of being removed from the land of the living. And David could be asking God to eliminate his enemies. However, it's also possible David understood the book of life in the same sense as it's used in the New Testament, a record of the righteous that determines their eternal destiny. Now I go to the book of Revelation. Six times in the book of Revelation, God refers to the book of life. There it refers to the heavenly record of those who are righteous and who will inherit eternal life. Those whose names are not in the book are cast into the lake of fire. 
In terms of reconciling those two passages, I begin with the reality. God doesn't actually require a physical book. You know, God isn't in heaven sitting in front of a a book. Uh, He knows what's true in the hearts of every person. Uh, Rather, he's using the image of a book there as a figure of speech to show that he knows and controls everyone's spiritual destiny. David was asking God to judge his enemies. And in Revelation, God promises never to bring eternal judgment on his followers. But those who don't accept his gift of salvation and who choose to do evil, they're going to discover their names are not in the book of life. And sadly, as a result, they end up in the lake of fire. Maybe that uh, response has kind of given you pause to think. Maybe you're a bit shook up. You can know for sure that you know Christ as Savior, that you're headed for heaven, that you're living for Jesus now. And a friend is glad to pray with you at 888-NEED-HIM. Don't go away. More to come on our program. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next on The Land and the Book. so many stories of so many great women in the Bible. Very few, though, have the power of the story of Hannah. Coming up on The Land of the Book, Charlie Dyer's devotional takes us to a visit with Hannah. Uh, Charlie, her hometown was what? Well, it's actually a crazy name. It's called Ramathiam. It's probably the biblical town Rama, about six miles north of Jerusalem. Okay, and she would have traveled often to Shiloh, which would have been a distance of what? Actually, it's funny because back then you didn't measure in miles. It it would be uh, probably about a six to eight hour walk over some rugged hills. Well, we're about to take that walk in your devotional. But first, this Holy Land experience. Hi, this is Linda Johnson. I just returned from Israel, had a wonderful, wonderful trip with my church from Connecticut. And I wanted to tell you that the trip was beautiful. We visited so many wonderful sites. We went to Golan Heights, Capernaum Synagogue, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Dome of the Rock, King David's Citadel, Church of the Beatitudes, of course, the Old City, Mount of Olives, Bethlehem, the Garden of Gethsemane. We had such a wonderful time. Our tour guide, David, from Israel was wonderful. Our pastor from Connecticut was wonderful, and there was not one time when we were scared, and I just wanted to um, tell you this. It was a real honor, and it was a real privilege. Thank you. A visit to Shiloh. That's what we promised, Charlie. Looking forward to your devotional. Ah, Thanks, John. Well, I hope you brought along your hat today. We're nearing the end of Israel's long, hot summer, but the sun is still intense. And we're heading out onto the site of ancient Shiloh, or some would say Shiloh. It's the out-of-the-way location where Joshua and Israel pitched the tabernacle, and it remained the center of Israel's worship for over 300 years. We'll head up to the visitor center in a moment, but right now, let's walk down to view the most recent excavations. The archaeologists believe they've discovered the spot where the tabernacle actually stood. Uh, Perhaps I should rephrase that. They discovered the spot where the renovated tabernacle stood. You see, the original tabernacle was a portable tent, but at Shiloh, it evolved into a slightly more permanent structure. How do we know this? Well, in 1 Samuel 3.15, we're told that a young child, Samuel, opened the doors of the house of the Lord. The original tabernacle was a tent with flaps, but this structure had physical doors. The excavations also show that the structure housing the holy place and the holy of holies had stone walls rather than simply being a tent. 
though most of what we see now is just piles of rocks, there's still a sense of awe standing here. After all, Joshua was here, assigning the tribes their inheritance. Eli the high priest ministered and died here at Shiloh. His two wicked sons brought disrepute on the site until they carried off the Ark of the Covenant into battle from here and lost their lives. You know, they thought they could manipulate God, but they learned too late that God's life wasn't in their hands. Their life was in his. Young Samuel ministered at the tabernacle, likely within a few feet of where we're now standing. And every year, thousands of Israelites came to this site to stand before God. You can almost hear their conversations and laughter in the wind that whistles through these nearby hills and canyons. But as amazing as all that is, I want us to pause and focus on one of the most remarkable women in the Old Testament, who also is ultimately connected to this site. Her name is Hannah, which comes from the Hebrew word for grace or favor. The word had the idea of kindness, but when we're first introduced to Hannah, her life doesn't seem to match her name. In a culture that valued children, Hannah was barren. God had literally closed her womb. And though God's ideal for marriage was one man and one woman for life, at that time God did permit a man to have multiple wives. However, the Bible presents a clear picture of the petty jealousy and rivalry that existed in such arrangements, and Hannah's life was no exception. The other wife, who did have children, would, quote, provoke Hannah bitterly to irritate her. This made the family's annual trek to Shiloh nearly unbearable for Hannah. She wept bitterly and refused to eat. In desperation, she finally went alone to the entrance of the tabernacle, where she wept and prayed to the Lord. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. But as if to add insult to injury, Eli the high priest, who was watching, misunderstood Hannah's silent prayer and accused her of being drunk. Without going into details, Hannah told him she wasn't drunk, but was praying out of my great anguish and grief. Eli finally acknowledged the sincerity of her prayer and expressed his wish for God to grant you what you have asked of him. In a touching ending to this part of her story, Hannah responds, May your servant find favor in your eyes. The word she uses for favor is related to her own name, Hannah. She senses that her own circumstances will change because the God of grace Will now extend his favor to her. She departed from the tabernacle, went to get something to eat, and the writer records her face was no longer downcast. A stop and look around. Again, imagine a stone building, perhaps still covered by the original tabernacle tent. Imagine stone walls around the compound. Eli, the high priest, was seated by the doorpost at the entrance to the building when he noticed Hannah slip into the courtyard to pray. She wept silently as she mouthed the words to her prayer. Her lips moved, but otherwise she remained silent. Her heartfelt prayer was a vow to God. If he would open her womb and grant her a son, she would dedicate that son to the Lord all the days of his life. She took Eli's final words to be God's answer to her request, and that's why she was able to leave with an unburdened heart. When God answered her prayer and she gave birth, she named her son Samuel, which we might translate heard by God. She had called out, and the very name of her son was a reminder to her that God had listened to her prayer. After weaning Samuel, Hannah brought him to the tabernacle and presented him to Eli. Her words at the end of chapter 1 summarize the recent events of her life in a few short sentences. I prayed for this child, 
and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And we have one more snapshot of Hannah before we leave today. It comes from Hannah's extended prayer of thanksgiving to God in chapter 2. The prayer focuses on God's ability to intervene in a person's life in response to prayer. Hannah began by praising God for his ability to rescue and exalt his followers. There is no rock like our God, she proclaimed. She then called on those who seemed to be doing well to guard against arrogance and pride since God knows a person's thoughts and motives. He can reverse an individual's status, making the rich poor while bringing wealth to those in poverty. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. It's no accident that Mary's prayer following her visit to Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 parallels many of the themes found in Hannah's prayer. Mary also offered praise to God for extending his mercy to those who seek him. Well, it's time to leave the spot where the tabernacle stood and head up to the visitor center for a video presentation. But before we go, what lessons can we take away from our visit with Hannah here at the tabernacle in Shiloh? Well, the first lesson I see is the importance of being honest with God. Hannah struggled with being barren in a society that connected children with God's blessing and in a family where she was goaded and hassled by the rival for her husband's affection. Rather than lashing out or seeking revenge, Hannah took her anger and frustration to the Lord. She wept and prayed, but she did it quietly to the Lord. Do you believe God exists and that he cares for you? If you do, then don't let your problems and frustrations overwhelm you. As the old song admonishes, Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, the second lesson I see in the life of Hannah was her willingness to give back to the Lord in response to his answered prayer. She offered her son in service to God before ever conceiving. Then once she gave birth, she didn't renege on her promise, and God rewarded her for her faithfulness. 1 Samuel 2.21 says she eventually gave birth to an additional three sons and two daughters. She parted with her only child long before God blessed her with all these other children. She was faithful to God, and he then demonstrated his faithfulness to her. Just remember, you're not trying to con God into accomplishing your will. You're asking him to accomplish his will for your life. And as you do, watch to see how God responds. It will often be in ways you could never have imagined. That's great, Charlie. Take it to the Lord in prayer and stay faithful. Great lessons from the life of Hannah. Hey, you can hear it all again when you visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. Our past programs all packed up there, ready for you to give a listen to at thelandandthebook.org. Well, our time is gone, but thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. <laughs>